What happens when a radio broadcaster gets let go from his sports talk job? Well, he tries to figure out what he wants to do next for a career. And in the meantime, joins the 4 million other podcasts on the internet and the John Cast is born. Join me each week as I talk to guests I find interesting or entertaining from the world of sports, play-by-play broadcasting, or whatever else sounds fascinating to me at the moment. The John Cast is what I'm doing until I figure out what I'm doing. Subscribe, download, and I hope you learn something along the way. So what you drinking this morning, Adam? Am I like the only guy who just doesn't drink coffee? I feel like I'm the only guy who doesn't drink coffee. I swear. I'm, I, I feel like the, the one person on the planet who walks around not like coffee. Or do you, what do you got? You got you, you coffee in the morning or no? So what I've done today, I'm usually a coffee in the morning guy. I, I made a protein shake. So it's a chocolate protein shake. But then I oh. added the coffee. So it's like I got a, a, a mocha, <laughs> but it's got protein. It's a, it's a smart, innovative move right there, Johnny. No, I, uh, I just, again... So I had one real stretch of my life where I drank coffee and it was when I, and you know what this is like when you have the early morning job, right? My first job out of college, my first full-time job out of college was doing uh, radio in Spirit Lake, Iowa. So I'd have to be up at four in the morning, four thirty in the morning. You do the show from six to 10 and then you do the sports cast at 10, you do the sports cast at noon uh, all that stuff. So that was, that's when I drank coffee. I, I would, I would knock out three or four cups like before 10 AM. And after a while that just didn't do me very well. <laughs> like it just wasn't, wasn't conducive for me. My stomach didn't feel like, yeah. didn't feel very good. So that's the only time in my life. I was a, probably a seven month period where I would oh. drink coffee every day in a significant amount. And I've very rarely, I think maybe five times a year, I limit myself to any coffee beverage. You are a rare, a rare exception here to today's yeah, I feel age. Weirdo sometimes, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're a throwback? No, a throwback would be drinking coffee. I feel like a throwback would be drinking coffee like all day, you know? Yeah. No, um, it's funny you mentioned the early morning stuff. I, I worked really early morning in Madison for about a year. And yeah. uh, I was telling this story earlier in one of the podcasts. There are a couple of times, Adam, where I, I would wake up at four. I think the alarm would go off at four. And mm-hmm. One time, I don't remember driving into work. Like, I just remember getting to work. And another time, I left like all the cupboards and cabinets open in the kitchen because I was looking for something. And then I came home later that day to the kitchen, just like somebody ransacked the place. Yeah. And I don't, I don't remember doing it. <laughs> I think I was half it's sleeping. A, the, the caffeine high that, that somehow erases sleep from your memory. Yeah. I don't know. I, and I'm not, it's not that I'm not a caffeine guy. Like, I, I I'll knock out a, you know, Coke Zero or, or something like that yeah. with lunch. You know, a couple times a week. But yeah, it just it just it, for whatever reason, maybe maybe just because, like after that job, I went into minor league baseball and it was perfect for me, right? Because I didn't have to wake up until you know eleven o'clock in the morning. I could sleep in. I'd, I'd stay up and work until you know one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, and then you sleep until ten, eleven o'clock. That was like perfect for me. So maybe that's why I just never really uh, got roped in any more caffeine stretches. You know. Well, maybe, maybe I'm missing something as a play-by-play guy. So I do the play-by-play for Wisconsin volleyball and Wisconsin women's basketball on the radio. Obviously, you do it at the NFL level and the NBA level. And I just had Lisa Byington on, who's the Bucks television announcer. Love Lisa, yep. Yeah, and she says she doesn't drink coffee either. Man, see, I, I, I don't know what it is. I don't think it's a, it's a real trend, though, or anything. I feel like Lisa's one of the few people that I know that isn't, uh, isn't you know, knocking down a couple of cups every day. 
Yeah. Yeah. You guys are the exceptions. Well, welcome <laughs> into the John Cast podcast. This podcast is brought to you by you, the listeners so far. And shout out to Keith, who has made a small monthly donation to help sustain future episodes. You can find that link on the podcast description and on this episode description. And uh, thank you. So I guess today's episode is brought to you by Keith. Uh, so that's how we're going to do it. But my guest here today <laughs> on the John Cast podcast is a television play-by-play announcer for the NFL on Fox and also for the Chicago Bulls. He is Adam Amin. Now, Adam, I believe, I think I met you maybe for the first time. Would you have been doing the 2013 NCAA volleyball on um, with regional finals, maybe the national semifinals too? I think it was the regional finals we were doing. Yeah. Uh, Wisconsin was in the same regional, I want to say, as Illinois, Purdue, and Florida State in yes. Champaign, Illinois. And it was Maria Taylor and I working together during that during that uh, you know three three day period basically yeah so how about that you and Maria have both gone on to have very successful you know careers in television that's that's kind of cool to go from 2013 do you ever sometimes think about uh, you know how you've gotten to where you've gotten and you kind of just sit back and reflect and say man this is this has been such a cool ride I think when you're in it yourself uh, at least this is how it's been for me like I don't really notice it because you're just, I mean, and, and I'm sure everybody's like that with their own thing. You know, you're just in it. I, my benchmarks are kind of marked off by my friends and colleagues. Like Maria is one of those people. Cause I, I did Maria's first game. Like Maria, when Maria first started working at ESPN and we worked together uh, right out of the gate, pretty much. So we were doing those, those volleyball tournaments together. Uh, and we were doing seasons of volleyball together. You just kind of knew you're like, yeah, this person's not, not want for, for this plane, you know, she's, she's going to be doing bigger and better things. And, and you just kind of knew with, with Maria and it's, and she still covers volleyball. She was doing it during the Olympics this past summer, you know, and that's, what's nuts. It's, it's a real full circle moment when she, you know, was on the Olympics for the first time. And I thought this is what we were doing a decade ago. And now she's doing it in front of millions of people on, uh, on not just national television, but probably worldwide. And that's kind of how I, how I gauge things. You know, I, I don't think I can really pinpoint it when I'm in it myself, but you, you see your friends, you see people that you worked with when you first started and you see that they've had significant levels of success and you kind of realize, Hey, you've been, uh, you've had some changes too. You know, that's kind of how I've, how I've been able to gauge it over the years is through, you know, what, what my colleagues and what my friends have done. And that's, that's pretty cool. That's pretty satisfying to be able to see them succeed the way they have. You said that you knew Maria Taylor was kind of destined for for bigger and, and better things. Have you have you felt that way about yourself? I mean, how do you view like your own personal success? Like, do you ever did you have a feeling that like you know what I I think I sound just as good. You know, I should be I can be doing something better. In my heart of heart of hearts, I'd like to believe that. I'd like to believe that I always kind of knew or that I believed it. I, you know, you, you want to say you, you've had faith in yourself. You never want to dismiss the work that you put in. And that's hard because you're balancing your own ego and your own narcissism in a business where sometimes it's required. I think the job that we do requires some level of ego to be able to have confidence enough to be in front of however many people are watching or listening to know that, you know, people are paying attention to the words that you use that that's always a nerve wracking thing. Anytime you have people looking at you, listening to you, paying attention to what you say, 
and recognizing that the words you're using, you're using have value, you know, that, that can always be a little bit nerve wracking because you don't want to say the wrong thing. It's not about not offending somebody. It's about being able to structure what's happening in front of you and contextualizing in a way that's easily digestible. And that's a lot of pressure to put on people. Now, is it, you know, the hardest thing on the planet to do, or is it the most pressing thing? No, of course not. We're, we're cognizant of that, but to do the job itself requires some level of ego and narcissism and a more so ego than anything else. And, and it's just enough to make you feel confident in what you're doing. I, I don't think I, I look at it in any, in any other way. You know, you, 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 you never want to feel like you're, you're patting yourself on the back too much, but I, I think there was always a hope. You know, I don't know if it was a belief, but I think there was always a hope that I was going to get a chance to do something cool when I was younger and doing this and trying to work my way up. But I think all of us have that feeling. And then, you know, you try to sit back and gauge it later and say, all right, how have I improved or how have I progressed? And those are hard things to figure out. Those are human, human things. You know, those aren't just broadcaster thing. I think those are human things that you're everybody's trying to figure out. So you can look back on a life and a career and think, all right, we've, we've done some really good things, even when it doesn't feel like you know, you're, you're, you know, setting the world on fire in terms of your accomplishments. At least you feel like you're making some progress and that you've, you've grown and you've advanced as a, as a person, as a professional. And that's, that's a good way to, to kind of go about it. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to me like you would have an easy time balancing your ego and staying humble. Um, am I wrong? Am I right? I think I do an okay job of it. You know, I, I think where my ego hurts me, it's not where I need it to be good at my job. I think I walk in fairly confident. And most of that comes in with, you know, preparation. You know, I, I feel comfortable when I know I've prepped the game and I feel like I've done the work. I've done the prerequisite work to to be ready for it. You know, like it's it's more stressful when I don't have everything or I haven't gone through the whole process. Uh, so so the ego in terms of confidence of doing the job at this point is there. Uh, it's the balance comes in making sure that you've done the work and that you've brought yourself to a place where you're comfortable and confident because you're, you have a grasp of the, of the material, like, like going in for a test. You know, we have an open book every game, right? Uh, We have the notes in front of us, but we got to know where they are. And and we're, we're on a timed test. You know, we, we only have so many moments where we can go back and dig through our notes you know, part of the process of prepping for these games is to have as many of these or have as good of an idea about all these notes and nuggets and scenarios and situations committed to memory as possible for that few hours, you know, so that you don't have to go digging through the notes, but it's an open book test every week. And having confidence that you know the material, even though the notes are in front of you, that's going to, that, that's always been the thing that's helped me feel comfortable and confident being able to balance, you know, your ego and, and your humility and then in terms of the job and, and how it's viewed, that's hard. <laughs> you know, like, uh, it, it's, I don't know if this is going to make sense, John, but I almost have to, like, limit my dopamine <laughs> in a way. Like, we're very fortunate, uh, especially with a local job. When you, when you work a local job and you have a good, good team and, and you feel like you're doing a, you know, solid work in that, in that, in that job, there's a built-in fan base. And if you do a good job, they'll appreciate you and respect you and, and, and love you for it in a sense. And you get a lot of praise for that. And that's cool, but you have to limit that too. I, I think that's kind of important. Like I have to limit how, how my brain is, is accepting praise as well. I think that's something I've had to learn over the years is you can't buy into your own hype if you have any. You can't assume that every time you do the job, it's going to be done the same way and it's going to be done perfectly. You have to put in the work for it. 
And the reason I feel comfortable and I can balance that ego and humility, it's easiest to do that when you feel like you've done the work. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I just got let go from my sports talk show, my sports talk producer host show in July. And what that allowed me to do, it's, you know, coincided with a month off and then volleyball season started. And for me, what it allowed me to do is to put like even more resources and time into preparation because yeah. before I was balancing two jobs and trying to do play by play and it, the preparation and that test. I'm glad you said that because um, I, I want to approach it that way. That's a great way to approach it because over the last several you know weeks, I've been approaching it, I guess, in that way. I just didn't really think about it in that way is that once you're able to put in a lot more time, like it almost became for me a little bit easier, right? Because, yeah. because the test, I knew, I knew some of the answers to the test and everything seemed to flow a little bit smoother because of that extra preparation. I think there's a process in, in not only in how you prepare and how your brain works and how your brain absorbs certain things, how it absorbs information and how it's able to process it. Not only is there a process to that, but I think there's a process to how you use it. And I've been getting more comfortable as the years go on. And this is by sheer volume alone. I like to believe that if the more you do something, you're supposed to get better at it, right? So by sheer volume alone, I'd like to believe I've gotten better at this just by doing broadcasts for you know as often as I have over the last decade. But there's a process in, in how your brain sees the game and how it meshes with the broadcast. You go, all right, I know these first couple of drives during this football game. We're going to have to do lineups, right? So we're going to show the starting lineups. And all right, do you have the note that you need to drop during the offensive line uh, when the offensive line is shown? Because, oh, they have a new right tackle. It, not a, You can mention that in the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. And you know you're supposed to because it's part of the part of the script. It's part of the open. It's part of the, the first couple of drives that are, that are structured for your, for your broadcast. But are you going to remember that in the third quarter? Are you going to... Is that, or are you just going through the motions? Are you just saying it for the sake of saying it? Or is it giving something to the audience that they need to know that may actually affect the game going down the line? So being able to balance that and learning how to balance that and learning when you can drop something or when it's easier to drop something or when the ideal time is to drop some information, like that process becomes a little sharper as time goes on as well. I always feel like my worst NFL broadcast every year is week one. Because you're getting back into the groove of it, you know, and it's your team. It's 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 a regular season. There's a, a certain cadence and rhythm that goes with it. And, and it's always toughest out of the gate when you haven't done it in a while. And by the time you get to week, you know, eight, nine, you know, right around this time of the year, John, it's like, all right, we know what we're doing. We know what the rhythm is. We know what the process is. I know what I'm looking for early. I know what, in, you know, information is more prevalent now. And which information, which pieces of information are going to be more prevalent in the third quarter or the fourth quarter? Let's hold on to those. We don't have to say everything now. So mm -hmm. that process is part of it too. Yeah, I like that. That kind of that planning throughout the broadcast, looking at the broadcast almost like a like it, it like a script, I guess, in a way. But but you don't you're know trying, the ending. Right? Yeah, you're trying. You're trying to. That's essentially what television is. Sports television is. You're trying to place as much of a script as you can on something that is completely unscripted for the most part. And that's difficult sometimes because you don't, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to predict the future and you're never going to get it right. You know, you can prepare as much as you can and you try to be ahead of as many scenarios as possible, which obviously makes it easier for you. 
And it helps when the game goes to plan, right? Most games don't go to plan. Most games do not go to plan. So just being adaptable and flexible. And again, having a command of the information, right? That's what preparation is about. So that when that curveball gets thrown to you, when you have to make an adjustment, when you have to shift courses, you have the information at your fingertips that makes it easier to make that transition, not only for you and your, and your crew, but for your audience as well. And that, that applies to TV or radio. So what is the grind of an NFL season? Cause are you, so you're doing obviously the Fox uh, NFL on Fox and still doing selectables television games. Is that what your schedule is like right now? Yeah. Yeah. We're uh, we're in Philadelphia right now. Today's uh, an off day in Philly. We got in about uh, probably about 1 AM last night into Philadelphia after playing a game in Boston on Monday night. Um, I had a game on Sunday in Chicago uh, we actually did the Bears 49ers game and I was at home for it. And then before that Saturday night, because I was in Chicago, that allowed me to do the Bulls game against the Jazz on Saturday night. So my, my TV crew was very cool. They were like, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll move our meeting up on Saturday uh, so that you can, you know, five o'clock, five thirty rolls around. You can go to the arena and go call your game and we'll do the production meeting. But we'll have one beforehand with you. So there, everybody made an adjustment, which is really cool. And, and I appreciate that. So I could call. Yeah, you know, three games in my hometown in three days, or three three games for my hometown teams over the course of three days. So, you know, the preparation's tough at times. It's it, it can be tedious at times, but again, it's part of that process. And today's an off day, and I'll spend you know a few hours today going over notes for Philadelphia tomorrow. And I have a Baltimore Ravens game on Sunday, so I'll be starting some preparation on that just to get some notes in and to to get a little bit of a head start. And I'll spend most of the end of the week really doing the heavy lifting on football. And that's typically what I do on Thursdays and Fridays is when I do the heaviest lifting on football. Mm, man. So you got to see San Fran and Chicago. So Justin Fields, I think he went over a hundred on the ground. Um, yep. So can he be like a long-term solution? Do you, you know, I feel dumb asking that question, by the way, to a, a guy in his rookie season, a few games in, can he be the long-term solution? Yeah, Who knows right. If he can, but, but what'd you think of, of Justin Fields for, for any bears fans who might be listening right now? I think that was the first real moment where fans looked at fields and thought, yeah, this guy has got to be the guy, right? Because he just makes plays happen that are just rare to pull off. You know, his, his touchdown run on fourth and one where he, you know, faked the handoff, ran right. The play essentially got blown up right out of the gate. He stiff arms, Eric Armstead away. You know, gets chased by three frontline defenders for San Francisco, runs around the left edge, gets a block from Jason Peters to take out the linebacker, Fred Warner, you know, and, and, and weaves through to get a touchdown to get them back within one in the fourth quarter. Those are the plays that they envisioned when they drafted him. You know, those are the, the things they thought could be possible with a quarterback like that when they drafted Fields, when they moved up to get him, gave up those picks to the Giants. And, when you see moments like that, when you have moments like that, you're in a game, you know, with a desperate team and you're, they played fairly well. They played fairly well in that game offensively. You look at flashes like that and think, yeah, that's gotta be the guy. That's gotta be the guy. That's gotta be the guy. And can he be the guy? I, I believe he can. Can he continuously make plays like that, you know, to bail you out a little bit? Sure. But I think the hope is that he doesn't have to bail you out. And that's when, you get into discussions about, well, does he have enough help around him? Are, are the coaches doing what they can? Obviously, Matt Nagy's been on the hot seat in Chicago this year. And I'm sure his success, Justin Fields' success, 
is kind of entwined with Matt Nagy's future a little bit right now. And is he the long-term solution? I believe he can be. Yeah, it's hard to tell when you're only, you know, six starts into your career, but the flashes of what we saw Sunday in particular against San Francisco, I think those are the the plays that make Bears fans believe that, yes, he is the long-term solution. So what's been the best game you've been able to cover for Fox uh, this season? Man, uh, I mean, this Pat, we, we, you know how it is. You, you hope that you get a decent game every week mm-hmm. <laughs> just in terms of, you know, give me a good finish. Give me something. I don't know what it is. Our crew has just been kind of cursed with some blowouts for the most part this year. It's just the way it works sometimes. You know, we, we, we hope for a close game. We've, we had a close game week two. It was like a, a five point win for San Francisco over Philadelphia, but you know, it was a, it, it was a grinded out 17, 12 game. You know, it didn't really have that entertainment factor. We had a lot of fun in Foxborough. We had a really good entertaining saints Patriots game, you know, young quarterback and Mac Jones trying to figure it out. And obviously he's played better uh, over the week since. So that might've been one of the better games that we've seen, but yeah, that 49er bears game was probably our most entertaining back and forth game of the season. And that's all, uh, that's all you can hope for. I had some great baseball games. We did a playoff game uh, or playoff series this year, the White Sox Astros series. You know, game three in Chicago was a back and forth game and a really fun atmosphere. So we've had some great places to go and great games to see and great teams to watch. But I think this past week is probably one of the more entertaining games in the 2021 season we've had. What about the Bulls? I mean, what, how fun is it to watch? I, I saw the highlight. Was it Lonzo uh, ball with the alley-oop to Caruso? Yeah. Like that, all of a sudden I saw that. I'm like, whoa, the Bulls. Maybe I should be watching a little bit more of the Bulls. That looks fun. What do you, well, what do you think of the mean, Bulls? We're, we're, coming off a, we're coming off a night where you see them get up by 11, lose the 11-point lead, go down by 19 in the third quarter to Boston, a team that obviously has two exceptional scoring players in Jason, Brown, or, uh, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. And the Bulls were able to come back from 19 down and win the game. And, and to do that, to start six and one, something they haven't done in a decade. Uh, they started four and zero this season. That hadn't been done by a Bulls team since Michael Jordan's, I think, fifth title season with the Bulls in the nineties. So, to see some of the improvements from the front office that they've made in in in, in reflection of the roster, and to now see it come to fruition, at least to start. You know, they've beaten some good teams. They've beaten Utah. They beat Boston. They played the Knicks very tough down to one point, their lone loss of the year. So to see that happen, you feel more and more invested every time. And that's that's been fun. You know, that's been probably a little necessary for the city, too. I think they needed a team to root for like this, that that has this level of talent. And I obviously have a lot of emotional connectivity to this team just because this is the team I grew up rooting for. You know, it's it was the Cubs, the Bears, and the Bulls for me in terms of sports that I cover that, you know, uh, teams that I, I grew up rooting for and sports that I now cover when they're good, it's, it's fun. And when you're working for the bulls and they're playing well, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So you grew up a bulls fan. So you grew up watching Michael Jordan win championships. Yep, man. And now you get to call the bulls games. Like the kid in you must be super excited about that. It was definitely like the, uh, the the kid who's you know like I I remember when that when I got the job I was picturing the kid in, in my parents basement you know like watching the games with my dad and that was uh that was a really big deal that was a that was a really cool full circle type of moment to 
be thought of as somebody who could represent the team that you grew up rooting for. And, and is it, is it that important at the end of the day? No, not really. No, it's not. It's, it's just sports. It's just sports. It's, it's fun. It's supposed to be entertaining and it's just a job too. You know, it's not supposed to be the defining thing. And I try to keep that in mind as often as possible, but when you're actually doing the games, when it's, you know, when it's the two, two and a half hours that you're on the air talking about this team, you know, my, I feel my emotions coming out. I feel like not anger, but like, I feel frustration when they don't play well, the same way a fan would. And I haven't felt that in a long time because I haven't had to, it's been a national gig for a long time. And I started in this business. Like many people do. I was doing minor league baseball. I worked for teams. I worked for a couple of teams and yeah, you get into July and you're working for a baseball team and they're in second place. Yeah. You get upset when they don't win, you know, two out of three against the team that's in front of them. Of course you're like, Oh God, no, no, it doesn't affect your mood necessarily, or I don't want it to affect my mood or how I treat people or how I go about my day. But when I'm working and I'm emotionally connected and they don't play well, yeah, it's a little frustrating. And I, I forgot what that was like. And it's been nice in the first you know, handful of games this season, this being my second year, uh, full season doing games. It's nice that they're winning. You know, you feel emotionally connected to their winning. Yeah. So Michael Jordan, I mean, I'm guessing he was your favorite athlete as, as a kid growing up. Cause for, he was, for me, I had, I had the bull starter jacket. I had a, a, a jacket with like Jordan on the back. I got all the Jordan cards, not his rookie, unfortunately, uh, in, in today's day and age. But I mean, were you full in on Jordan or who was your favorite athletes? I mean, yeah. we still have, I mean, my, my brother and I had a, uh, the Jordan poster with all the rings, you know, by the, by the end of the decade, we had the, you know, the, the one where he has, you know, five, I think it was after the fifth title, he had all five rings on one hand and just, you know, that, that was the, the poster in uh, our garage. You know, we had the artist Gilmore poster, you know, that was, that was the other thing too. Like I saw artist Gilmore the other night, uh, he was, uh, introducing Tony Kukoc, uh, in a ceremony in Chicago, you know, as, as a, nod to him making the hall of fame mm-hmm. and i sat there and went i had his poster on, on our wall you know my brother and i shared a room and we had artist gilmore's poster on the wall so it wasn't just when i was born it was just jordan and and obviously that was a huge reason for it like it was for so many of us that was my those are my formative years as a fan and they're affected by arguably the greatest player to ever play a certain sport but you know we were bulls fans for a long time, my brother was an art, you know, my brother had the artist Gilmore poster. My brother is my, my, we had the 1984 Bulls team poster on the wall. And while Jordan solidified it, you know, it, it was just the city. It was the regionality. It's the provinciality of professional sports that, you know, people in, people in Milwaukee feel that way about Green Bay, you know, like people in Sheboygan feel that way about the Packers, you know, the same way that I think people in Wisconsin feel about the Packers. We felt about the Bulls during that time. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's cool. But you, your family is a big Bulls family even before Jordan. Then it sounds like yeah, so. Definitely. Yeah, you guys are r- real true. So, um, what is your best game that you've been able to call? What's what's the most memorable best game? Like you, did you call a Goomba Wale, right? All the Goomba Wale. That was uh, that's that's up up near the top of the list, if not at the top of the list. I mean, that was a remarkable moment. Just one that kind of popped in my head that I know that you were uh, that you were a part of. Is is there one that stands out the most for you? I mean, that, that might be it. Um, you know, uh, Arike, I, th- I think part of it too, is that I had covered Arike when she was in high school, you know, and she was, you know, coming out as a freshman to Notre Dame and was at the McDonald's all American game and all that stuff. And 
I had covered her brother, Dare, when he was a running back at Wisconsin, done a bunch of Wisconsin football games. So I got used to that name. I, I had that name of stuck in my head when I first started broadcasting, just because I heard that name so much. So when I saw Arike and we started covering her in college, I was like, hey, I feel a little a little bit of connectivity because I kind of got to introduce her to a national audience during that McDonald's game and to say, hey, this is a freshman that you're going to want to know. And I think my first year was her junior year. First, My first year doing the uh, women's Final Four was the 17-18 season. That was her junior year. And it just kind of coincided that that was my first year. This was the player that I think I knew best because I covered them the most. And they happened to be the best team in the country, arguably, that year. Uh, I it's still hard for me to believe that it played out the way it did, you know, for her to make the shot she made on, on Friday night against Connecticut. And, and remember the game before that went to overtime as well. The Louisville Mississippi state game, uh, Rashonda Johnson. I remember hit a huge three at the end of the, at the end of the second half to tie the game for Mississippi state. And then they had, I want to say it was Jasmine Jones, maybe I might be getting that wrong, but they had an opportunity to win the game on a, on a follow on a tip in at the buzzer and, and just missed it. And, went to overtime. It was a thrilling game. And then we had the Ogumbawale play. And I remember leaving the arena that Friday night with Carol Lawson and Rebecca Lobo and Holly Rowe were in the car going back to the hotel. And I just thought, well, we're not going to top that. <laughs> Sunday is going to be terrible. You know, we thought there's no way the championship was even going to come close to being that good. And it was even better, you know, to win the national title. And, and that, those are lightning in a bottle moments. And between that weekend calling the kick six game between Auburn and Alabama. I did the national radio call for it in 2013, the Chris Davis 109 yard return for, you know, to win the division and uh, send them to the SEC title game. Uh, that uh, some LeBron James buzzer beaters, uh, some incredible playoff performances in the NBA, you know, Isaiah Thomas scoring 53 uh, in an overtime win against Washington in game two of a playoff series. Kelly Olynyk goes off for, a huge fourth quarter in game seven against the wizards one year, uh, Jason Tatum's dunk on LeBron in game seven, uh, LeBron's chase down block, uh, against Boston on, on, uh, Terry Rozier, uh, his huge shots against the Raptors, Steph Curry scoring 33 in the second half of a playoff game to clinch a spot in the conference finals, a game seven performance by CJ McCollum against Denver. Like all these are now flooding back to me. And it's just weird to think that you've been, you know, able to witness a lot of cool stuff just in the last five, six, seven years. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you, what you just started listing off there are not only, you know, memorable moments for you, but those are memorable, like for the world of sports, the pick six, people are always going to remember this sports fans, LeBron James, like you are saying iconic moments in the history of sports, Adam, I mean, that you are a part of that's, I mean, do you ever pinch yourself sometimes? I mean, it, it, it's hard not to. Right. I mean, even and, and you try to take you try to take each game for. For the most, you know, to be, you try to take each game as the most important game, and that's an attitude that I think I've been able to carry throughout my career. I think I think part of it was you're just so happy. You're just so happy to be doing something. You know, you're happy to be doing games. You know, that's that's part of the, the gig is is for me, it's the most pleasurable part of the job is the game itself. You know, the, the work, the tedious work, the research, all that stuff. And, and it's the most important part of it. But 
the most fun part of it is the game. So to have any moment that makes you feel like, hey, that was really cool. It doesn't even have to be the buzzer beater. It doesn't have to be winning the national title on, on the last shot. It doesn't have to be those things. If you can find joy and, and enjoyment and pleasure in doing the games and just finding the moments of those games, thinking that was awesome. How cool was that? How cool was that shot? How cool was that dunk? How cool was that touchdown, that home run, whatever it may be? If you can find some joy in all of those moments, you'll always have a good time. And you'll always be able to look back and think, man, that was pretty cool that we got to do that. And then when the moment is, like you said, almost like culturally significant to the to the sport that you're calling or to, or to that to the world watching that day or listening that day, then even better. You know, if, if, if the moment is there and you can deliver it in a way that makes you feel like you did the job justice and the game justice and you try to serve your audience the best as you can. So, I, okay, so the, you're talking about these big moments and you're preparing for every game as, you know, as if it's going to be a big game. So when a big moment, this is my play-by-play nerdy uh, looking for advice question. When a big moment is unfolding in front of you, what are you trying to do best as a play-by-play announcer? I remember Al Michaels always talked about being the coolest guy in the room when the temperature is, is getting to its hottest in the play, in the arena, you know, or in the stadium or during the game. You know, that's one thing he, he probably does. The one, the one thing is like Al almost sounds not bored. This is not a uh, criticism of him. He's so unflappable. He's so unfazed during big football games. And you can tell what he knows. It's a big moment. You know, you know, Al's voice. He's not a yeller. He's never been a yeller. Uh, it's, but it's just a little more emphasis and a little more oomph behind it when you know it's a big place. So you're comfortable with that. And for me, I'm, I, I get emotionally engaged. I'm, I get very excitable just because I love when big moments take place, right? So for me, it's, it's trying to corral that and trying to keep it cool as much as possible. I, uh, I never claim to be the coolest person in the room. Uh, I, I definitely want to be better about keeping everything level, but when the big play happens, I get excited and I want to make sure that I stay in command of, of what's happening. You know, that, that semifinal game that we were talking about, that Notre Dame Connecticut game, Arike hits the shot to go up two with a second left. And we still have to make sure you know, she hits the shot, we hit the call, and then we go one second left, no timeouts for UConn, and then they're throwing the ball down the floor. It's not like you can get caught up in the shot. You have to keep calling the play. So I think being able to be in command as much as possible when things are starting to go, starting to get a little hotter, that I think is a skill that I'm getting better at. I'm still the you know, working on that. But I think that's probably one of the more important things when you get into these big moments is trying to still remember that you want to get caught up in the moment with the audience. And that's, there's nothing better than when you're a reflection of the fans or you're a reflection of the audience watching where they're on the edge of their seat because you're on the edge of their seat. They're excited because they heard that you were excited. So they feel like it's appropriate for them. You're, you're a liaison, you're a conduit to the emotions of what fans are feeling, but you also have to do your job. And if it's the last shot of the game and you can go nuts on it, great. Awesome. If it's a big shot with four seconds left or it's a touchdown with still a minute to go, you can't 
give it all up on that play. You still have the rest of the game to go. And, and I think Al does that as well as anybody, you know, the guys who've done this forever are the one, you know, the, 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 the people who do this job for a long period of time are the ones who know that the best. Uh, is there a misconception that people may have about your job that you kind of hear often when you're just talking with people, they may not know a lot about, you know, what it's like to be a broadcaster. Is there a common misconception about broadcasting games? I'm sure there are a couple. Um, I think the ones that stick out the most to, to the non broadcaster. Cause I think, I think there are two sec segments of people uh, that, that ask about this. And I think there are broadcasters and non-broadcasters. And when it's non-broadcasters, I think the misconception is that you just show up and you start talking. And it, oh, that must be so great. And it is. It really is. It really is great. It's a great job. But there's a lot of just tedious reading and note-taking and highlighting and researching and listening and talking. And there's a lot of that in the lead up to being able to go on the air for two and a half, three and a half hours a week and being able to talk about this stuff. And that's the part where I think like the, the, the non fun part is what people don't see. They don't see me up at 2 AM taking notes or trying to find one extra story or trying to jam in prep on a game that I have two days from now that I'm not going to get a chance to work on until tomorrow night, because I've got another game that I have to call. I think that part, there's a major misconception that we just show up and start talking and it's just personality based because again, why would you think anything else? You're just, you're just a consumer. All you want to do is sit down and watch the game. You don't give it, you don't care. You know, you're not supposed to care. Don't care about that stuff. So it's okay that they feel that way because they don't need to know. It's not their job to know when it comes to the broadcaster. I think the biggest misconception, and I'm going to, I'm going to sound like the old guy now, I'm sure. And I say this as a, a guy who's 34. I, I don't think the younger sect realizes what it takes to get to this level because jumping in now is so easy. There's so much easier than it ever has been. The opportunity in this business has skyrocketed because you can do so much on your own now. You know, like the, like we, I've had podcasts in the past, you, you know, you can, you can do that on your own in a sense. And, and you can do it well. And that's what's cool to see, especially this younger generation. They, they are assertive and they know that they want to do this, this, or this. But I think to do it at the highest level, the highest levels, and I, and I, I believe that I'm one of the, the few people who's fortunate enough to do this at what you could argue to be the highest levels. Network television in this country is still a big deal. The NFL in this country is still a big deal. To work for an NBA team is a big, big enough deal. To do it at this level, it takes a lot of building blocks and foundation building. And I don't think that comes in the sequence of events that this next generation is dealing with. Because just the technology is, has blown up. They can do it on their own. They don't need your help. Mm. But to do it at this level, it, it takes a lot of people to get you there. It takes a lot of work to get to this point. And it takes some things out of your control. I don't, I don't lie to people and tell them that it's all me. I, there's some luck involved. There's some good timing involved that, that's out of your control often. And I don't think for such an assertive generation who's so sharp and wants to wants to do things the way they want to do them 
I don't, I, I, you have to remember that there's a lot of things that are out of your control that help you get to these points. And, and I'm not saying that the, this generation won't appreciate that. It just takes, it just takes patience. And I'm sure our, you know, the, the people of our ilk, John, are also impatient when we were in our twenties thinking that we were going to be doing this right out of the gate. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting what you say about just how easy everything is, whether it's a podcast or, or doing play by play, because before, like, if I ever wanted to do play by play, I had to go find a radio station that was willing to let me talk about the teams, you know, there's willing right. to let me give me that opportunity. And, you know, you can kind of workshop that on your own now at, at lower levels if you just want to do it. Cause I mean, I started doing play by play just basically, you know, NBA live, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I just playing a video game and kind of doing my own play by play. And that was kind of my practice because there wasn't the accessibility, whether that's with play by play or sports talk, you couldn't, just all of a sudden buy a microphone, have a computer and boom, now whoever in the world can click on that link and listen to you. So it's, it's, it's a little strange that how much yeah. that's changed. Absolutely has. And, and, and that's, again, that's part of the evolution of this business. Again, the internet wasn't a thing for the generation of broadcasters before us, you know, like that, 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 that's fair to remember that we have so much information at our fingertips. Our job is easier than, than it was for them. Like they, we didn't, they didn't, you know, I, I don't have to wait for the facts, you know, to come in, you know, I don't have to wait for the fax machine to send the 50 pages of game notes, you know, like that's how it used to be. Kenny Albert would sit in his, in his house or have to go to like a, a library or something and wow. get, you know, 25 pages of game notes faxed to him from the New York giants that week when Fox first started doing NFL football, there was no internet. And I've come into this job, essentially having the internet at my disposal. I remember when I started doing this college, you know, my freshman year was 2005 at Valpo, you know, the internet was, was there anytime we needed info info. Oh, the game notes are on the website. Let's go grab those. Oh, we have to get the stat page. Oh yeah. That's on the website. Let's just go grab that and look at it. And you could do prep on your own right out of the gate. And then you'd get game notes delivered to your email. And that was easy, you know, and it wasn't as easy, but you know, it, even five years before that, 10 years before that, it wasn't as easy. So our jobs were made easier by the internet. And for this generation, their jobs are made a little bit easier by the amount of information that they have in front of them. So every generation has to evolve. I hate even separating myself from that because it makes me feel old. Like <laughs> I, I want to believe that I'm, I'm still a baby in this. And in a lot of ways I am, yeah. you know, I, I think, like I said, at network level, there's still only a few of us at this age that get to do this at this level. And that's always been the case. So I, I'd like to believe that I'm still part of the younger set, but I'm not, you know, like our, they've evolved past me. They've evolved quicker than I have. And, and I'm trying to keep up by just doing the job the way that, that I know how to do it. And I'm, I'm going to have to change at some point too. I'll have to evolve. Yeah. Speaking of evolving. Okay. So when I sit down on a, a Monday night broadcast and I watch the Manning cast, when it's available to me, Adam, when I, when I first saw that and now watching it for a few times, that's. It, it seems like it's the future. It seems like it's, the, it's a mesh of high-level talent, podcasts, casual, slash you're watching the game. Like There's a combination of entertainment and information, and it's different than what traditional play-by-play -play broadcasts have been all about. Do you, what do you see when you see the Manning cast, for example? And is that something that the future of broadcasting might be headed toward. I'm not saying like 100% everybody's going to be sitting around talking about football during game day on a Sunday on Fox, but I, I feel like there's something there. 
I think there's something there. And I think you, you need it for a specific type of broadcast. And I think, you know, to ESPN's credit, and I worked there for nine years and, and knew a lot of innovative, smart, uh, forward-thinking people that were like, hey, we, we got to stay ahead of this. And that's why the megacast was such a big deal. You know, like we, we did the megacast. I, I did it for four years for the national championship game and did the I did the ESPN two broadcast. And that was, you know, we got a million people out of that audience watching. That was a big deal for us to be able to call it in a different way. We were still calling it. It was a, a hybrid way for us to call it. You know, we were traditional, but we, they would let us be looser. We were on the sidelines. We weren't upstairs. It wasn't about the stats and, and about being a polished broadcaster. It was about giving fans a different perspective and giving them a little bit more personality. And I don't know if that's going to carry over to everybody. You know, like I said, the, the, the NFL on Fox on Sundays or on CBS on Sundays or NBC Sunday night is still done in a very specific fashion. And the main broadcast, I don't know if it's going to change for ESPN anytime soon, Mm -hmm. but this is an alternative and this is okay to have an option for people to watch. I've enjoyed the Manning cast and I've noticed I'll watch if I have that team the following week. As most of us do in the NFL side, we watch the previous week's games or at least highlights or whatever it may be. And if I have the, that one of those teams the next week, I want to watch the main broadcast. I want to watch Levy and Greasy and Riddick and Salters and think, all right, well, that's, an, that's something to know. That's a good piece of information. Or, oh, they're doing this right now. Obviously, we'll need to know that for next week. And it's, I want that information delivered to me in a more traditional fashion. If I don't have a dog in the hunt, if I'm, if I'm just sitting on my couch and I'm, I've got my laptop on my, on, my, on my lap and I'm just going through some notes or thinking about something else or maybe getting started on another game I have to prep for, I like just having the Manning cast in the background. And I like it to have that casual, more casual podcast feel. Obviously, though, the difference between those guys and everybody else who wants to do this those guys are really smart. You said it. You have yeah. to be able to put, you still have to be able to present information in a way that's digestible. And that's what this job is where uh, people in Britain call them presenters. And I think that's a great way to, to refer to what we do. We're presenting you something. And I, you know, I guess technically I'm a commentator and, you know, Kurt Menefee is the presenter of the game, but you're still, that's all you're doing. You're just giving an audience this show you're presenting them this piece of entertainment for three hours and there are so many ways to be able to relate that to an audience that it's nice to be able to see some thinking outside the traditional box and will it be the main way people want to digest football in the future i still don't believe that the majority of the audience just wants to watch the game and, and be told why something is important and why it's not but for the hardcore fan who likes that inside talk, for the casual fan who knows Tom Brady or who knows John Stewart or who knows, you know, Jared, you know, Josh Allen was a guest, I think, the other night. If you're a casual, more casual fan, that's a great entry point into you enjoying a broadcast. Hey, I know the Mannings. I remember this guy. This guy hosted SNL. Both these guys did. I remember that. Yeah. Like you can you can connect in a little bit easier of a fashion. Yeah. You mentioned the mega cast too. I, I really love that idea, by the way. I love the mega cast. And I remember I was watching you on the sidelines a few years ago too, or whatever. And you're holding like your, your game chart and you're on the sidelines. And I'm thinking, I wonder what it'd be like to go down on a football field and try to call a game. Like 
you can't, can you see any, like, were you watching off a monitor? How'd you even do that? Yeah. I mean, we had, we had enough of a view for a lot of the plays, but I mean, what's nice is it's the national championship. So you're at a, you're usually at a good place. You're usually at a, um, uh, you know, like more professional, not professional stadium, but like, well, yeah, often it's a professional stadium, you know, it's yeah. an NFL stadium. So yeah, they had a huge jumbotron at all these places. So honestly, we, we called a lot of the, a lot of the action looking up at the at the jumbotron just to just to know and again we didn't have to say it's a 27 yard pickup it wasn't about that you know it wasn't about identifying the tackler the way you would on a on a regular sunday on a big play it was what's the feeling what's the atmosphere what is what does it look like here when can we sprinkle that information and that feeling in that specific um sense of the broadcast in and then obviously we'll call it the as best as we can and we have smart football people that can break things down and we can still talk about it in, the, in that way without feeling like we're impeding on the broadcast of the game itself okay two final questions for you uh number one i noticed no twitter your twitter account has been what's going on there are you just not doing social media during <laughs> the season i i'm trying to get better at this and i stopped tweeting in july i went on vacation and i was just fried you know i've been working for i think at that point 13 straight months you know i got hired at fox during the pandemic i had switched i got hired by both fox and the bulls in june of 2020 during the pandemic so it was a weird transition to make and obviously i was still very fortunate to even have a job you know let alone two and I went to work as soon as I had the chance because we we shut down in March, right? Like all of us mm-hmm. on this side of things. And again, is it the most important thing in the world? No, not really. But this is just our this is just what we went through. We we stopped working. Everything shut down in March of 2020. So for three months, I did nothing. And my only thing was sitting around my apartment like everybody else. And I was trying to navigate this this transition of 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 my jobs. And once that took place, I wanted to work. I, I was tired of being at home and I, I just needed something to feel like, hey, you're, you have some purpose. So we started working for Fox. We started working out of a studio, doing game, doing base, Major League Baseball games out of a studio. We started doing that in late July. And then the football season started. We were traveling. And then the NBA season started. We were not traveling, but we were doing the games out of studio in Chicago or at on site in the arena with no fans. That started in December. And then that season went all the way to mid-May and I'd started doing baseball in early April. And that carried me all the way through mid-July. And finally, I got to a point where I said, I think I need to take a break. It'd been 13 straight months. And I asked my bosses for, for a month off. They're like, yeah, you take a month, take time. Uh, and when I went on vacation, I thought, I don't want to weigh myself down with just trying to be connected to everything that's happening. I want to give this a shot and see if I, I can function without tweeting. I'm still on Twitter. It's the best information curating application maybe of all time. They may not ever be topped. You can curate a timeline perfectly to each week, to every day, to what you want to follow, what you don't want to follow. And you follow the, for me, you follow the writers that you want to follow. You follow the beat writers of the teams. You follow whoever that you need to follow, whatever accounts that are going to give you the most information in the quickest sense and in the same space as possible. So I'm never going to give it up, I don't think. I'm always going to be on it in some capacity. But I stopped engaging. And the pressure that it took off of me 
as somebody who's grown up on social media, I've been on Twitter since my senior year of college, 2008. And I've spent my entire adult life growing up in front of people and having all of my thoughts that I felt like I needed to put out because that's what we all do on display. And I went through a lot of highs. People saw like I, I got hired for these jobs while I was on social media. People got to see me be vulnerable. My dad died and I spoke about it on social media three, four years ago. And, and people were able to connect with me because of that. And that, that made me feel better. That helped my, my healing process in that sense. So I know how important it can be and I know how uplifting it can be, but I also know that at times it becomes just muck, you know, like you don't want to be fighting in the muck. You don't want to have to keep defending yourself. And part of it too, I understand is that I'm at a point in my career and probably in my life where I just don't need it. I don't need to use it. I don't have to use it for my career anymore. I'm very fortunate to be in a position that I'm just, I'm happy I'm content at the very least, maybe even not happy, but content with what I get to do. And I don't need to justify that to anybody. I don't need to fight with people about it. I don't need to tweet something for, for the, that dopamine hit. Remember we were talking about dopamine and kind of like the serotonin that your, your brain generates. I need to keep that in check. Sometimes I don't want to keep reading nice things about me because that, and that's the other thing too, John, like nine out of every 10 things that people say to you on Twitter probably going to be nice or, or at least, Hey, especially when you're in a job, like I'm in, I'm we're the voice of the bulls. We, we have a good time. We're, we're entertaining enough. People seem to like us and, and the team's playing well. So naturally we're going to get some praise from some, some people and nine out of 10 things that you read are going to be nice. And that one thing that's not is the one that's going to stick in your, in your brain all the time. And, and I'm getting better and better and trying to be better at it of not letting that affect me. And I'm still an emotional person who, has been conditioned by social media for a long time. And I'm still going to have that in my head and I'm still going to be sensitive to those things. And I'm learning to get better at that. And I think not tweeting and not engaging and, and fighting that urge and saying, you don't have to engage. It's okay. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't, nobody's attacking you in a way that anybody is going to carry any value in it. You don't have to defend yourself. And I think I've gotten better at accepting that. And I think that's part of the reason I've stayed off of it. That's really cool. I would love to do that. Um, by the way, I think Instagram is like a better platform to stay away from some of that muckety muck. Definitely. Definitely. Um, you were talking about, I, I, I like, I like, I, I stay on Instagram because for me, that's still, that's still a document for me at the end yeah. of the day. When I look back on that in 20 years at the archive of photos, I'm just going to remember, I'm just going to have the memories of it. And these are little documentations of cool things that we get to experience. Hey, this is, this is, this was a cool day. On Sunday, I posted a screenshot of Joe Davis doing America's game of the week, filling in for Joe Buck with Troy Aikman next to him on the biggest game that people watch 20 million people or however many people watch that show. And right below it was a screenshot of me with Greg Olson doing the number two game on Fox. So there's Joe Davis and myself, two guys who started in this business together in minor league baseball in 2010 in suburban Chicago and in Northwest Indiana stayed in touch for a year after that critiqued each other endlessly, mercilessly. We both got hired at ESPN within a year together. We both ended up at Fox together. We both have local jobs in two of the top three markets in the country. I was a, a groomsman in his wedding. I've seen, you know, I've, I've known his wife as long as I've known him. I've known his kids since they were born. I've known his family forever. And here we are doing the number one and number two games of the most popular sport in this country 
on the same network back to back leading into the World Series. And I posted that the other day with a photo from 2011 when we were sitting in a broadcast booth together in Montgomery, Alabama. And that to me is just, that's a reflection moment. Like, yeah, I know Instagram is very surface level and that's, that's totally a valid argument to make. And, and at some point, I'm sure I won't feel the necessity to, to use it. But for me, that's a documentation of my, own, of my own adventures, so to speak. That's something that we get to document and say, remember that day I got to do this. This day I got to do that. This was fun. This was a cool moment. And those are more conducive to me feeling positive about the things that I get to do every day and keeping that positive attitude about it because I don't feel the necessity to defend it. Mm-hmm. And it's more of a reflection now. Very cool. All right. To wrap this up, Adam, uh, I had Jeff Levering on. He's the Brewers broadcaster at one of my early episodes. Um, I forgot to do this with Lisa, but here is something uh, I would like to challenge you to do as a broadcaster. Um, Do you ever do this thing where you, so to give you some background, um, you know, calling games on the radio, I always used to, you know, text broadcasters who was doing a game and say, Hey, say the word jello or something like that, <laughs> you know? And then they say the word and you laugh. You're like, ah, oh, that's my word. I just texted him that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so I've got a term for you to, to work into a broadcast. Would you be willing to try it? Perhaps let's, you... let, let, let's hear it, man. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. So this is what I'm thinking. PSA 10. Do you know what that is? You know, you're gonna have to explain it to me. Okay. So I think this will, is very niche. Um, so when you get into sports cards, you can grade cards, right? And a PSA 10 is like the best, you know, it's a 10, a rated a 10. So I'm thinking you could use that on some sort of dunk, some sort of catch, some sort of whatever, like a PSA 10 clay. Can you say, could you try PSA 10? Oh, that'd be interesting if I could work that in. That would be interesting. That's a good challenge, John. I like that. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, if you don't know what you're talking about, it may seem a little silly, but I'm telling you what. You get a PSA 10 call in there, someone's going to pick that up and they're going to go, oh, Adam Amin, he knows his sports cards. He knows his, he knows his memorabilia. That's a, you know what? That's a great challenge to throw in. And I'll have to find a spot. I'll, find, I'll have to find an organic spot that, that makes that work. And if I can make that work, I'll make sure to clip that. Okay. Gem Mint is another way to describe that. So Gem Mint or PSA 10. Uh, I love I think, that. I think you could get it done, uh, Adam. <laughs> okay. I'm going to be listening. I'll be, I'll be listening. I'll be keeping an eye out. If you say it, you let me know. Okay. You got it, brother. That's okay. Awesome. Hey, all right, man. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. No, anytime, man. It's been uh, it's been really cool, man. This is this is cool that we've we've been able to stay connected in some capacity. That just going all the way back, you know, eight years at this point. This is awesome. Cool. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, John.